Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. We'll dive in there in just a second. In the message this morning, I'm going to invite us to look at three scenes from Holy Week. We're going to pick up the story where uh, Jesus and his disciples, just after Jesus and his disciples gathered in the upper room. It was in the upper room where Jesus would teach them and model for them what love looks like. He taught them and then he modeled for them. He got down, took the place of a servant. He washes his disciples' feet. He engages in conversation about betrayal. He points to prophecy in the past foretold and prophecy about to be fulfilled. He breaks bread and he lifts up the cup and he proclaims the inauguration of a new covenant. It's a covenant of love. Jesus says, a new commandment, I give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Matthew describes the end of uh, the scene in the upper room this way. Verse 30 uh, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. How cool is that? The disciples come out of the upper room and they sing a hymn. What hymn do you think they sang? I love this. We would understand that they probably sang the Psalms. The Psalms were the, not just the prayer book, but the song book of the people of Israel. The Psalms were memorized and then they were prayed, they were shared, and they were sung by all the people of commun in community. They didn't have song books like we have song books. Uh, they didn't have PowerPoint lyrics like we have PowerPoint lyrics. So they just memorized the words. They memorized the Psalms, 150 Psalms. They memorized the Psalms, pretty amazing. And the Psalms weren't numbered like they were today. So the person who is leading wouldn't say, hey, we're going to sing Psalm 118. The song leader would just start singing. He'd sing the first line or she would sing the first line. And after singing the first line, everybody would like go, oh, oh, I know this one. I know this one. Some of you guys might know this. Uh, Psalm 118, 24. It says this. If you know, uh, I'll sing the first part. You guys sing the next part back to me. You ready? This is the day. This is the day. That's it. That's Psalm 118.24. The song leader would sing the first line and then the congregation would sing the second line. I think that's probably what happened when the disciples came out of the upper room and they sang a hymn. Most commentators believe the song or the hymn, the psalm that they sung was Psalm 118. The psalm that we read together to begin this gathering this morning Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. And then I'll just read a couple more verses. We just read this. You just read this. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. 
let us rejoice and be glad. Can you imagine the disciples singing that hymn after being in the upper room? This morning, I wanna look at these three scenes from Holy Week, and I'd like us to frame these scenes as three verses from the redemption song, the redemption song that's sung during Holy Week. The first verse of this redemption song is found in Matthew 26, 36 through 46. After leaving the upper room, the disciples walk over toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And this first scene happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a verse of surrender. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes, here comes my betrayer. Jesus felt the deepest grief and the deepest sorrow. Up to this point in his life, he had never experienced this kind of pain. The closer Jesus moves to the cross, the more aware he becomes of the weight in which he will carry. The closer he gets. This is the first time, really the only time that is recorded in the gospels where Jesus actually asks for help. This is the only time where Jesus asks for his friends to pray for him. The closer he gets to the cross, the heavier this whole thing becomes. Last week, we read a little bit from Mark chapter three. The text said that Jesus was angry and he was greatly distressed. Here in the garden, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so he says to his friends, hey, pray for me. Stay with me, stay with me. Keep watch with me. This, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, sort of reminiscent of some of the Psalms. Psalm 42, 5. The psalmist is sort of speaking to his soul. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It says the same thing in Psalm 43, verse 5. Psalm 25 in the Old King James says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. 
Jesus prays three times. He prays the same prayer. Chapter 26, verse 39. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The first part of verse 39, I want you to notice that. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. I don't know if you've ever been in a place of such sorrow and grief that you've just laid out prostrate before the Lord. That's what Jesus is doing. He's fallen to the ground, laying prostrate, saying, Lord, God, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then he says, your will be done. Your will be done. Jesus eventually comes to the place in the Garden of Gethsemane after this season of prayer where he says, okay, I will do it. I will bear the weight of the sins of the world. I will drink this cup of wrath. I will drink it to the very last drop at a cost that you will never, never, never really know. The first verse of any redemption song is going to be a verse of surrender. The second verse happens here. It happens here at the crosses. If the first verse is a verse of surrender, the second verse is a verse of trust. If you have your Bibles and you're following along, just slide down to Matthew 27, 27. 27, 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, that's the courtyard, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. A whole company of soldiers would be like 600 soldiers. 600 soldiers. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head and they put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. The sheer physical pain of being flogged and beaten and then this crown of thorns jammed on his head. He's stripped naked. He's spit on. The physical pain. And then, then there's the emotional pain. Can you imagine? And for what? For what? This whole scene that we just read, I think it, I think it shows sinners, like, it shows sinners at their very worst. Like, this is, this is dark stuff. They are mocking and brutalizing the very person who is laying his life down as a sacrifice for their sins. And I don't like to think about it this way, but my sin was there. I was there. My arrogance, my self-sufficiency, my avarice was there. It was there. Yours was there too. Verse 32 as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They 
came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Normally, uh, crucifixions take place outside of the city wall, outside of the wall of Jerusalem, but not this one. By crucifying Jesus at Golgotha, the Jews are further rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 34, they offer Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Jesus would not be soothed. He wouldn't try to mask his pain. He would choose full surrender. Jesus would choose suffering. Verse 35, when they'd crucified him, they divided up his clothes and by casting lots and sitting down, they kept watch over him there and above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Rome, crucifixion was reserved for the worst kind of criminals from the lowest classes of society. And for Jews, crucifixion was even a worse punishment because it came with a curse. And they placed this title over his head. Here lies Jesus, the great pretender. He's nailed to the cross in between two sinners. But even on the cross, the emotional pain doesn't end either. Verse 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are gonna destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. For he trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus, our suffering servant, totally forsaken by his people, completely misunderstood, rejected by everyone, and he takes it. He takes all of it. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have come up with another way, but Jesus knew this is the only way. This is the only way. And so he trusts in God's will. He trusts in God's way. It was the only way that atonement could be made for the sins of the world. It's the only way to pay the penalty for sin. It's the only way that redemption could come. And it would come in the form of this man, Jesus, the man who trusted the will of his father. Luke's gospel picks up one really important detail that Matthew's gospel doesn't include. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers, truly I tell you, today you will be with me 
in paradise. So powerful. There, at the beginning of this scene, these guys are kind of, they're going, they're going along with the crowd. Both of these two guys are hurling insults at Jesus. Both of these two guys are persecuting Jesus verbally. But yet something happens to this guy over here. Along the way, something begins, this guy begins to recognize something about Jesus. He recognizes him in his pain. He's watching Jesus bear the weight He witnesses Jesus' refusal to fight back, refusal to defend. He's just watching him. And finally, he's compelled, so compelled by the presence of Jesus that he says, hey, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. He asks Jesus to remember him. This criminal probably, I think, as far as we can tell, is the last person who turns to Jesus for help during Jesus' ministry. And he's the one person who understands and accepts the path which Jesus must follow to fulfill God's purpose through death to enthronement at God's right hand. When I talk about trust, back to Matthew 27, I think we're up to verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and he put it on a staff and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Darkness comes over the earth for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. The Jews would know that darkness is a sign of God's judgment. And it's here in this time that God's judgment is upon the entire human race. All human beings now stand guilty before God. There's no way around it. You don't have to look very far to see it. I think you're here today in part because you believe it. We don't like it and we want to resist it. But if there's no guilt, then there is no hope. And from the cross, Jesus makes this incredible statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been on this cross for three hours. And he doesn't just mumble it. He screams it. Skeptics like to point to this line as a reason not to believe in Christianity. They say, look, look at your king. He's totally cracking under pressure. What religious leader ends up like this? Buddha? I don't think so. Uh, Muhammad? No. 
Skeptics say, this ending is so unheroic. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing infinite sufferings in perfect obedience. He doesn't cry out, my side, my side. He doesn't cry out, my feet, my feet. I'm in such pain and agony. He cries out, my God, my God. He is experiencing the greatest suffering of all. Jesus has become sin. The Bible, the Bible says that Jesus didn't take on our sins on the cross. Jesus became our sin on the cross. And what does sin do? Sin separates. You probably know this story. Sin separates. If there's a sin that's happened in your marriage, it separates. If there's a sin that happens in the family, it separates. If there's a sin that happens in the church, it separates. Forgiveness brings us back together. But here on the cross, sin separates. What Jesus is suffering is separation from God. There is no greater agony than to lose love. Uh, some of you might know a little bit of that pain, a glimpse of that pain, the pain of lost love. In all of this, Jesus is in perfect obedience. And why did he do it? Why endure all of this? The best answer that I can come up with is totally inadequate. It's because Jesus was glorifying God, glorifying his father. Even there on the cross, he's glorifying God in heaven. Why did he do it? He did it to glorify God. Why did he do it? He did it for you. And he did it for me. And from hell's heart, he cries out, I love you still. I love you still. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Because of the cross, Jesus paid a penalty that you could never pay so that you could experience a reward which you could never experience on your own, the righteousness of God. Because of the cross, you are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God doesn't treat you now as your sins deserve. God treats you as if you'd done everything that Jesus had done, as if you had lived his perfect life. You are not only forgiven, you are made right with him. His righteousness is on you. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? I want to say one more thing just about that statement because there's more to it than the song. Than, there's more to it than just what the statement says. There's, there's a song that goes along with that phrase. It's the third verse of this redemption song. Surrender, trust, and now faith. Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon just real quick. Remember the beginning of the sermon where they just came out of the upper room and they sang the song, the Mount of Olives. You guys remember that from just a few minutes ago? And the, whoever it was, probably Jesus, starts the song and everybody starts singing along. Do you remember that? Should we go through that exercise one more time just real quick so that everybody's with me? You guys remember what happened there? Okay, just wanna make sure. 
because that's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is singing the redemption song from the cross. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Said that it would be the Psalms that the disciples would be singing. It would be their song, the songs of the people of Israel, the prayers, the laments, the cries for help, the praises, the songs. From Psalm, from Psalm 22, Jesus is speaking the first line of the redemption song. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Do you see that at the beginning of Psalm 22? Even on the cross, Jesus knows about resurrection. Jesus knows every word. He knows every line of the redemption song. And from the cross, he starts singing the song. And so from the cross, Jesus decides to remind himself and the people around him that resurrection is coming. So he sings the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night and I find no rest. Can you imagine the disciples, those who are standing around the cross are going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that Psalm. I know Psalm 22. I memorized that Psalm. I know what he's saying. I know where this song is going. If you have your Bibles, just follow along. I don't know if you can kind of put this tension together, but those standing around the cross, I bet they were trying to put these pieces together. They would know the next line, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried out and were saved in you they trusted and were put to shame you guys with me are you with me so far the psalms are responsive to what god is already doing the psalms are like answering speech god initiates and then we respond in our prayers right Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. A thousand years before the cross predicts what's gonna happen on the cross. And Jesus is singing the song for all of his followers to get it, for all of his followers to understand. I don't know, I don't know where you are. I don't know how you're perceiving this or hearing this. I can only imagine those first hearers are saying, that's him, that's him, that's the guy we've been waiting for. Jesus is saying, I've come to build a new kingdom. It's not like any other kingdom, it's an eternal one and I can make a way for you to have access to it. I can make a way for you to hope again. I can make a way for you to live again. I can make a way for you to love again. Psalm 22, verse nine, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at, my mother's, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me. My trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. From the cross, Jesus refuses to be soothed. You remember? 
We just read about it. Verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircled me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. Jesus is singing this song. This is the song that Jesus is singing from the cross. He didn't write this song. He is fulfilling this song. Verse 19, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He's saying, yes, I must be separated from my father. My sin and your sin has separated him from the father, but the father has not turned his face from him. The father will rescue him and the father will rescue you and redeem you and resurrect you through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. What song are you singing? It's a song of surrender. It's a song of trust. And it is a song of great faith. This is how Psalm 22 ends. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. He has done it.